Hello, Podland. It's Andy, the Analytical Preacher, and we are discussing a really interesting topic today, the compatibility of science and the Bible. As most of you know, that topic has been beaten pretty hard throughout the centuries with folks taking different sides. Unfortunately, there's often sort of a motive or a political edge uh, to the conversations. And so what I want to do today is just, as we always try to do, let's look at the Bible for what the Bible says about itself and see if we can come to some sort of a conclusion. Um, To cut to the chase, and for those who aren't interested in a long podcast, are the Bible and science compatible? The answer is absolutely yes, they are compatible. And it's really actually more than that. Not only are science and the Bible compatible, the Bible actually sort of defines science, and the Bible actually lays the foundation for science, and the Bible actually instructs mankind, it instructs human beings to engage in scientific endeavors. So they're not just compatible. The Bible, in one sense of the word, really requires that humans be scientific. Let me lay a couple of verses down. Of course, we know uh, in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, it speaks about God creating the heavens and the earth and so forth. We've talked about this in a different podcast uh, that in those early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, Uh, The Bible lays out for us what becomes the first law of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics and the law of biogenesis, etc. But it also says, Genesis 1, verse 14, says this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then the verse goes on. There's another verse At the very end of Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, uh, after uh, humans had been created, and it says, uh, Genesis 1, 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. We're all pretty familiar with that part of the verse. It's this part that I'm interested in. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over And then he goes on to say, the fish of the sea over the birds of the air of the heavens and every living creature that moves on the earth. That's important. Again, we sort of all have this idea. Oh yeah, God said, be fruitful and multiply. So have kids and fill the earth up because you're made in my image. So fill the earth with my glory. And some folks will say, which is a very accurate way to put it. And God made us stewards. He made us sort of the on-site managers of his earthly creation. So God made us managers of his earthly creation. But then he also tells us how we're to manage it. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So if we put those verses from Genesis 1, 14, together with the verse from Genesis 1, 28, I believe God is literally saying this. The world is going to work in a mechanistic, routine way. Spring preceding summer, preceding fall, preceding winter, and then repeating itself in day following night, etc. Those things are not at the whim of the gods. It's not if I get angry or not angry that I'm not going to give you a season to plant and a season to harvest, or I'm going to put the world into utter darkness forever until you can please me again in some way. God is saying, no, the world will work in a mechanistic and routine fashion. Now, You be managers of the earth. Go figure it out. Subdue it. How? Through scientific and technical knowledge. Go subdue the earth through scientific and technical knowledge and have dominion over it. Take what you learn and apply it in being the managers 
of the earth. Take the raw material that I've created for you and create new things from it as you begin to subdue the earth through scientific analysis of how it works in this routine manner. A professor named Rodney Stark has written a couple of different interesting books along this topic. I think the one that hits closest to this idea is his book called How the West Won. And and the, the purpose of that book is to say the reason that most of the early scientific and technological developments were made by Christian peoples is not because the Christian peoples are smarter than anybody else or there's something about their culture that was different. He says it was something about their religion that was different. Most religious individuals pre-enlightenment area had a very fatalistic view of the world. It doesn't work in a consistent manner. It is at the whim of the gods. And there's no sense in us trying to figure it out to subdue it in a rational or scientific way because that's not how the world works. Christians had come to believe, individuals like Francis Bacon, who uh, developed what we call the scientific method, individuals like Bacon, very strong Christians and, and tremendous students of the Bible, had come to understand, actually, God tells us the world does work in a consistent and mechanistic way, and therefore, we should be able to peel the layers back and better understand it. And so, Professor Stark's uh, claim Uh, And again, I I would highly recommend you read the book, How the West Won. His claim is that Christians tended to dominate that only because the Christian worldview said we can understand the world and then take advantage of that knowledge. It's also interesting we speak about Francis Bacon, and it's not just that the Bible told us that you need to go be scientific, um, in understanding how the world works in a routine way. But the Bible even lays the foundation for how we do that. When we think about Francis Bacon, of course, we always think about the scientific method, that we have a theory and that we test that theory. And if we ever uh, falsify or invalidate that theory, um, then we know that's not right. And But if we put a theory force, uh, a theory forth, and it is falsifiable, but it turns out that we can't falsify it, then we add that to our accumulated stack of scientific knowledge. Uh, the, the 20th century philosopher of science, Karl Popper, actually sort of put it this way in defining what was science and what's not science. Popper says, insofar as a scientific statement speaks about reality, it must be falsifiable. And insofar as it is not falsifiable, then it does not speak about reality. So for me to tell you this is true or the God said this or science proves this, you need to be able to say, how was that tested? Was it tested? Is it possible to falsify what you're saying? And if so, has it passed that falsification test? Exactly what, so Popper in a sense is summarizing Bacon, but Bacon was summarizing the Bible. It's very interesting that when Moses had led the people out of, led the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage, out of Egyptian slavery, uh, the miracles that he had performed had sort of said without question to the people involved that he was God's spokesman. He was God's prophet. As Moses got close to his death, there began to be a question. How will we know who to follow? How will we know in the future who speaks for God? Knowing that this question was coming, God in the book of Deuteronomy provides them with an answer. And the answer is essentially this. Use the falsification method. If they're truly a prophet of mine, I will give them something 
some explanation of how the natural world works, some prediction about the future. I will give them something that can be falsified. If it is falsified, ignore them. They're a fake spokesman, a fake prophet. If it can be falsified, but it isn't falsified, then they speak for me. This is how it's actually written in Deuteronomy 18, 20 and 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So science tells us you need to, I'm sorry, the Bible tells us you need to go be scientific. The way that you determine truth from error and the way that you accumulate knowledge is essentially through the falsification process. Francis Bacon formalized the biblical falsification process into the science process. And because Christians believe that we could understand the mechanistic world that God had built for us, we took Bacon's method and the biblical worldview and we took off and we created the science that we know today. So if all those things are true that I just said, then why has there been this, and not always perceived, but why has there been this actual problem sometimes between certain religions and certain scientific people? Because what I just described would obviously suggest that everyone religious would promote, everyone biblical anyway, would promote science in a big way, and science would understand that its underpinnings ultimately came from Scripture. And here's the issue, and it's a simple issue, and the issue comes down to power and to control. No real surprise there that some human dynamic comes down to power and control. Here's the truth. For about a thousand years, the Catholic Church was literally the most dominant, pervasive, powerful institution on the planet. The Catholic Church not only maintained a stronghold on Christianity and on biblical interpretation and on worship services and on taking the tithes of individuals, etc., but the Catholic Church held tremendous power, especially over the politicians, the monarchs, and the lawmakers in Europe. So the Catholic Church could issue laws, they could annul laws, they could cause trouble for kings sitting on thrones. They started wars, they ended wars. The Catholic Church had this tremendous... Now, the Bible never said to the Catholic Church or any other church or church leader that it needed to operate in that sphere at all. It said to be good citizens and to pray for our leaders, the monarchs, the kings, the presidents, the mayors. But it didn't say that the church itself needed to be actively involved in that. But the Catholic church was. And power, of course, is intoxicating. And so here's what happens. It really started with Martin Luther. And almost everybody's familiar with what's called the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther mails his 95 theses to the door of a church in Germany Uh, October 31st, 1517, and Protestant churches began. Then, just a few years later, less than 20 years later, actually, King Henry VIII broke from the Catholic Church and essentially started his own church, the Church of England. You might know it as the Anglican Church, or Americans would really be more familiar with a word like Episcopalian Church. So in 1536, King Henry VIII left, pulled England 
essentially out of the church after they had already been on mainland Europe, a, a Protestant a revolt against the Catholic Church. And in just a few short years, the Catholic Church saw their power and their dominance just cut off at both knees. And in the panic of that happening, in the panic of them losing not only religious authority, but literally worldwide political authority, Copernicus publishes a book in 1543 that has the theory of the heliocentric model, that the earth is not the center of the universe, but that the sun is at the center of our little uh, piece of the universe and that the earth is actually uh, going around it instead of vice versa. So when Galileo, a couple of different times in the 1600s, got in trouble with the Catholic Church over this idea. There's nothing in the Bible that the Catholic Church can point to that says, but this is where God says the earth is the center of. No, it doesn't say that in the Bible. But the Catholic Church thought, wow, we're already losing political authority in England. We're losing religious authority on mainland Europe. And now we're going to lose the, the authority to essentially tell people how the world works. So we're going to lose our scientific and our philosophical authority. And the Catholic Church simply said, we're not going to let this happen. And so though they weren't pointing to specific Bible verses to counter folks like Copernicus or Galileo, they fought nonetheless. And here's the interesting dynamic that's happened. Bible-believing individuals, Bible-believing Christians were never anti-science, were never against Galileo or Copernicus or anybody else who's done actual scientific discoveries using a falsification method. Bible-believing Christians were always in favor of science. The Catholic Church had a power struggle with some early scientists, which is understandable. But as I say, today the dynamic has switched, and here's what's happened. Today, it's science that is now condemning the Bible. Christians, again, Bible-based Christians, evangelical Bible-based Christians, are enthusiastic about science, believe in science in a tremendous way. But scientists now, they get upset. There's an interesting quote. Scientists for some time have been attacking uh, Christianity. For example, when Stephen Hawkins wrote his book about the brief history of time, Carl Sagan in the introduction talks about maybe one day someone like Hawkins will discover a reason that we don't need a God anymore. There was no scientific evidence that there, that reason was going to come, but you could tell that Sagan wanted it to come. He wanted science to have more power, more authority, more respect than some of the religious institutions and people's lives did. In a different book, Stephen Hawking himself, in a book called The Grand Design, writes this, Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Hawkins was not only saying science needs to take the place of politicians and of religious individuals, science even needs to take the place of philosophers, of social scientists. The hard scientists need to take control. Radical hard scientists 
physicists, biologists, etc., have even made statements like, we don't need laws and lawyers. We can rationally, scientifically determine morality. They've said, we don't need philosophers or poets or artists to tell us what is beautiful. We can scientifically, rationally determine what is beauty. Clearly, that's going way too far. And so today, in the, in the day, the Catholic Church had seen that it was able to consolidate this power. And when the threat came that they might lose it, they panicked and they picked a, picked a fight they couldn't win. Today, scientists think that they're on the verge of consolidating that power for themselves. And one day, we're not going to listen to political leaders and we're not going to listen to uh, religious leaders and we're not going to listen to philosophical leaders and we're not going to be led emotionally by the creative artists in our midst. But we're all going to look to scientists. And so scientists now try as hard as they can to downplay the Bible and Christianity. But here's the simple truth. There is no fight between the Bible and between science. Powerful men and women will always fight for power and control and prestige, but there is no fight between science and between the Bible. 